0: Today we're going to continue in Genesis chapter 2, and we started last week um, by just uh, starting in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. And we talked about uh, what that actually meant. And so just to get us back on track, how about Alberto? Was he okay? Okay. it was good I I listened to him and thought it was a very clear message it helps that he has an accent because that makes us listen even more intently but um, he really delivered it he just marched right through the text and then brought some application excellent preacher so um, he wants to plant a church in Sicily and so there's a method to my madness Uh, I want to become friends with him and see if we can help him plant a church in, uh, in Sicily so As we look at the text, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Uh, Some people actually take that to be a second account of the creation story that is unlike the first in Genesis chapter 1. And this is one of the reasons is because it kind of introduces it. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. The first section, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, is describing what took place. But then in Genesis 2, 4, we see the Toledoth of the heaven and the earth, the generations of the heaven and the earth, and it introduces what's going to follow in the heavens and the earth. It's not a second account that's different from the first. It's an in-depth diving, delving into what took place during the six and seven days of creation and, and explains it even further with the emphasis on man and humanity. Showing, it shows what came forth from that creation of the heavens and the earth and it's a continuation of what is described as taking place in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. So 2, 4 tells us it's an introduction. It introduces to us something that's going to follow Genesis 1, 1 and 2, 3. And that is the story of humanity. From Genesis 2-4 going forward, all the way till the end of time, we'll see the story of man and everything that history entails, including his fall, God's plan for redemption, all the way to the consummation, and God's final recreation of the new heavens and the new earth. So 2-4 is not really introducing a new Uh, account of something that took place from a different perspective, it's actually just carrying on and deepening that, and it really tells us what's going to happen in the heavens and the earth. Now, God is not only an awesome creator, but he's also personal, and this gets into the whole area of God's transcendence, that he is beyond, he is outside, greater than his creation. But also we see in chapter 2 then that he is intimately involved with that creation. He doesn't just create and then as that great creator God leave the creation to go on by itself. He is intimately involved in that creation and that is the eminence of God. So you have this transcendence and eminence uh, both presented to us in Genesis 1 and 2. And we see this through the compound name of God which we get in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. It says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in a day that the Lord God, it's a compound name, Lord God. And that Lord, you see, is all small caps. It's all caps. And that is to show us uh, another name of him. And God is the same as we saw in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, God is only used, and it's used as Elohim, the great one, the all-powerful God. But then when you add this compound, um, Lord God, that word Lord there in the Hebrew, uh, it, it's actually just consonants, and the Hebrews really did not even pronounce it, but we've given it a pronunciation so we can understand it, and we say it's Yahweh, Yahweh. I love singing songs with hallelujah in them because that Yah from hallelujah is Yahweh. And I just, I love it. And you notice if you sing songs with hallelujah in it, you're really lifting up God in those songs. And so this compound name has caused all sorts of problems. People, some people would say, well, see, there's a different author for chapter two because he's not even using the same name of God. Huh. Man's mind is something else, and the heart is one that creates all sorts of idols, and the mind is one that creates all sorts of craziness that we really don't need. But there are many very scholarly men that say, well, Genesis chapter 2 is a totally different author that wrote that because he's using uh, Yahweh, Elohim, instead of just Elohim. That is not true. The name of God, Elohim, is predominant in Genesis chapter 1 and it depicts the one true God and the infinitely great and exalted one who created the heavens and the earth and who preserves and governs every creature. Whereas in chapter 2, we're introduced to Yahweh Elohim and Yahweh is a personal name of God and is seen in our English Bibles with that spelling all capital letters, L-O-R-D. First seen in Genesis 2 4, it's the compound name for God, and it's used over 20 times between Genesis 2 4 and 324. So, just to tell us that He is intimately involved in what's taking place in Genesis 2 4 through 324. The constant use of that double name or compound name is not intended to teach that Elohim, who created the world, was Yahweh, but Yahweh, who visited man in paradise, who punished him for his transgression in chapter 3, gave him a promise of victory over the tempter, a deliverer that would come, was Elohim. Yahweh, the same God that entered into man's and relationship with man, is the same God who created the heavens and the earth. So let's keep that straight in our minds. And as I mentioned, it's the the transcendence and eminence issue here. The Bible teaches that God is distinct from his creation. He is not in his creation because that is pantheism, where God is everything. No, God is transcendent. He is other than his creation. He created everything that exists, including us. But he is not only transcendent, he is also very involved in his creation because it is continually dependent upon him for its existence and its functioning. The technical term for that is his eminence. He is eminent. The God of the Bible is no abstract deity removed from disinterested or disinterested in his creation. And the Bible is a story of God's involvement with his creation and particularly the people in it. Now, this is really important because you have personality. God is a person. In fact, he is three persons in one God. And <clears throat> this is way different than what um, the, the the materialists or the naturalists would tell us about things. Excuse me for a second. Because, <clears throat> and, and, and to their credit, I think they would say that as they look at the heavens and the earth and the universe, it blows their minds. It is so vast. The expanse is so magnificent. I mean, if you see some of the pictures coming back from the Hubble telescope of galaxies, it's like they're dancing and they're just all sorts of beautiful colors uh, in these pictures that we're getting back from us. And when the man without God looks at those things, they just say, this is just amazing, right? But they give no credit to God because the best that they could come up with is at least transcendent. If they go with um, intelligent design, they will at least say, there has to be an intelligent designer of this because it is too magnificent to just have happened. And I want to tell you, there's, there's many scientists that are not believers. They're not creationists. They would not credit God of the Bible with the creation, but they are moving towards a lack of belief any longer in evolution and the theory of evolution by Darwin, and they're now saying that there is intelligent design behind this. They probably would have credited it to a superior race of aliens, stuff like that, but they at least say... You know, there's there's something of design here, it's different, and they're not ruling that out anymore. A great book is written by a man, um, Dr. Behe, that's easy, B-E-H-E, and it's called Darwin's Black Box, Darwin's Black Box. He's, he's a biochemist, and he really challenges the whole uh, Darwinianism and the theory. <coughs> so you can pick that up and see that. So these twin truths of God's transcendence and his eminence refute a number of key religious uh, worldviews. Right in the very first chapters of Genesis, materialism, uh, which doesn't believe that God exists and only matter exists, shows us that God exists and there is more than just mere matter. So that points out the transcendence of God. It challenges pantheism both by the transcendence and eminence of God, because God is both outside of the universe, but intimately involved with the universe, which would go against pantheism, which just sees God as everything. He is in everything. It also challenges uh, the worldview of dualism, um, because it shows God's transcendence, because God transcends his universe. He is not equal to it. And also deism, which a lot of the founding fathers were deists. (coughs) They believed in God, but um, (coughs) they see him as only being intimate. But God did not create and leave it on its own. He is involved. Oh, hold on for a second. (coughs) Shut down. Canceled, if you will. Okay, so then we moved on and we said there are two important words that we want to talk about in this text. And it's down in verse 7 that we see these. Thank you, wifey. Spurgeon used to come down Saturday evening for supper and he'd say, Wifey, pray for me. It's not working. And that's where I get the word wifey from. She doesn't like it, but... <laughs> Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. This is beautiful. The two words are formed and breathed. Formed, this word expresses a relation of a craftsman to material, an artist. Or a, a, a potter taking clay and creating something. Uh, Psalm four nine says, He who planted the ear, does he not hear? And then we talk about breathe. And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Can you see the, the intimacy here? Can you see the eminence that God is intimately involved with this creation called man? Breathed means to puff or to inflate or to blow into. And it brings us face to face with the intimacy of this forming that he had just done. Because as it lay there formed from the dust of the ground, it was not living yet until he breathed into the nostrils of Adam and gave him life. It's almost a kiss-like Significance that displays not merely making man, but also giving life to his creation. One person has said that the person within is the soul into which God breathed life. Ecclesiastes 12, 6 and 7 say this. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bow is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern uh, cistern is crushed. It's talking about old age. He says, remember God in your old age. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was. Get this. And the spirit will return to God who gave it. (sighs) Ah. Beautiful. The Bible is so beautiful. In such a short, little, concise two verses, just a few words, it tells seniors how to live in their old age. And remember, you're but dust. You're going to return to dust. And your spirit's going to return to the God who gave it to you. So make sure that you have a relationship with him. Zechariah 12.1 says this, The burden of the word of Yahweh concerning Israel. Thus declares Yahweh, who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. There you have the transcendence and also the eminence just brought together beautifully. God not only designed man's material body, but he also designed the immaterial part, the soul and as a creator and sustainer of every human life, Yahweh reigns over the universe and every person therein. That's why, that's why the Bible says that there are those who say there is no God and God calls them fools. They're fools. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, the yearning in the heart of men for eternal life. I think of the Taliyabu. When we went to the Tali in the middle of nowhere, eastern Indonesia, a tribal group of people, and studied their language and their culture for four years so we could preach the gospel to them, in the midst of that studying, we would often go to their cultural exhibitions, if you will. And uh, one time we went and it was late night, very late night, 12, 1 o'clock, and they were beating gongs and drums. And all the people were dancing on a raised platform. And they're dancing, they kept rhythm to the drums with their, their feet. And they had babies on their shoulders, on their backs, you know, and they were swinging around, and the baby was just like, whee! And, and they were singing something, and so I was trying to transcribe what they were singing. And here these people were in the middle of a jungle, and they were dancing around in a circle, and here's the words to the, the song that they were singing. Of all the shamans that have breath, who will deliver us from this death? Their whole culture was centered on trying to find eternal life because they knew it was wrong when people died and their flesh rotted. And so what they would do is they, they wouldn't bury the person they would allow the flesh to rot off their bones and then they would wash those bones and put them in a box and take that box of bones and put it in their homes because they hoped that maybe someday that person would come back to life. (laughs) Were we sent to a prepared tribe or what? God knows what he's doing. But listen to this verse in Ecclesiastes 3.11. We're told that God actually embedded a longing for eternity within the heart of man. He says, he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their hearts. So you have a welcome person, even though they don't believe in God, because God has set eternity in their hearts. He has also given them a conscience, which condemns them. And so you can go to anyone and begin to talk to them about these things of eternal life. What's going to happen when you die? Have you thought about that recently? And, and you know, the Bible tells us what happens. People say, well, we don't know because nobody's ever come back from, from death. Well, yes, there is one. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he's told us what happens. And you can just go on from there and and witness. Man's not just another kind of animal. A human being has been created much different from the animals in that the immaterial part of us is different. God created us and then differentiates us from the animals. While it's true that the term soul is used for other forms of conscious life, so it's not just distinct to individuals or men, also points to something that's even greater than just that living soul. It's, it's what God created us in the image of him created he, man and woman, male and female. And according to his likeness, that breathing into Adam somehow communicated life to mankind that is different from all the other creatures' conscious life that they have. He didn't breathe into the elephant. He didn't breathe into the dinosaur or to the snake. He breathed into man. A man sees his child with his eyes, but he loves him with his soul. Job thirty-three, 33 four says this, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. We're back to transcendence. And eminence. We have the creator giving life to his creature. Now, there's a vast difference between a biblical worldview and the way we who have the Bible and believe in the Lord and are being transformed from glory to glory and sanctified through the Bible. And those who do not know God, they also have a worldview. A worldview is just how you see things happening in the world, how you explain what's going on in the world. And so I'd like, uh, Sam, if you have a slide for us, we can put this up. This is just a comparative very quickly for you to look at. In a biblical worldview, we understand that man was created in the image of God. But those who live in the world without God and without hope see man as merely a result of random blind chance. There is no God in their mind. Biblically, people are valued and eternal. We, we are different than just mere animals. We have value, and it's by virtue of being created in the image of God. But in the, in the naturalistic worldview of man, or the materialistic worldview of man, there's purpos- uh, purposelessness. And, and they're just temporal. Yeah. Now you live and then you die. That's it. You just go back into the ground. That is why you see the kind of things that we see in this world. And the inhumanity of man to man. The way people can use other human beings. They have no intrinsic value. It's just what can I get out of this other person. And so it's a mess. Biblically, each is unique creation of God, but in the materialistic worldview, people are replaceable. They're just chemical organisms. And that, too, has implications on the way that they treat other people. Man is preserved by God and watched over by God as their creator, whereas in the world's viewpoint, survival of the fittest. Darwinism, right? We're superior now. Get all the gusto you can get. Be the strongest one. The strongest one will reign. The smartest one will rule. Uh, this is the kind of thinking that underscores, let's kill all the Down syndrome babies. What good are they? Let's get rid of the aged. They're just taking up houses and, and eating resources that we need for ourselves. These kind of ideas have implications, don't they? And they're carried out. Man is God's steward. We have been given a stewardship. He said, I want you to reign over the earth, and I want you to replenish it, be fruitful, and multiply. But the naturalistic worldview only sees man as under nature, and there's no real design. Life equals meaning now. And in eternity, there's ongoing meaning. But in a world without God, it's without meaning, and it just ends in death. You go into the ground, and that's all there is. We see the universe is ordered by God. It's not chaotic and purposeless. God exists and is transcendent. No, no God. Nothing beyond nature. Man came, and man can depend upon God... And there's a structure. I just read the greatest article on a woman that discovered uh, the Y,Y and the uh, X, X and the X,Y chromosomes back in the 1940s. Nettie, something or other, was her name. I'll, I'll be talking about her next week when I talk about the creation of Eve. And, and she couldn't do that. Science can't operate if it's as chaotic as people are trying to make things right now. Because there's no consistency. There's no constants there. But God did create the world with a constance that can actually be studied. And as you study it, it should reflect back or redound back to his glory as such an incredible creator God. But when you live in a world without God, it's, it's chaotic. It has no purpose Man can depend on that structure and, and study it. But in a world without God, it's very difficult to depend on anything. I, I, science has fall, fallen on hard times. <laughs> how, how can you be a scientist anymore when you can't even tell the difference between a male and a female? And man's chief end is to glorify God. Survival and reproduction. You can go to the next slide, I think. Yeah. So there you have it. And I'll just leave that up for a little bit so you can copy it down if you want to. But, so when you're, when you're talking to a person about the Bible and you're witnessing to a person, you've got to realize that you're talking to somebody that's alien to these truths, Right? And depending on how long you're a Christian, you're also using a alien language. You're using a foreign language with those people. I'll never forget when I first got saved. I worked with a with a fellow in the in the parks department, and I was assigned over here in Mounds Park. And um, I just I was a brand new Christian, so I was really excited about it. And I told dear Don, that was his name, Don. And he was my boss, and I I told him I was a Christian and everything. Well, that was a mistake, because he hated Christians. And um, he just watched me like a hawk. If I came one minute late, he'd say, ha, so that's the way Christians act. Oh, it was just very, very difficult. But the good thing about it is that um, I learned much from Don. Don taught me much, because I'd go in and we'd have lunch. Even though he hated me, we'd eat lunch together, and he would, he'd tell me what he did, you know, over the weekend, and I'd tell him, oh man, we had the sweetest fellowship at church today. And he'd go, ooh, sweet. You know, like I was a different gender or something. And I just realized, wow, I'm using language that is just out of this guy's vocabulary completely, and do I want to identify myself like that? You know, so... We talk a foreign language. And we need to just speak in plain English and use the scripture, but realize that but for the power of God working in that other person's life, he tells us in Ephesians 2, 1, they're dead in trespasses and sin. Dead, not sick, not ailing, they're dead. So that whole thing with throwing a life preserver that's witnessing? No, it's not. That person's dead. He's at the bottom of the ocean rotting and that life preserver would do him no good. But we're still told to talk to those people and do what? Bring the word of God because Romans 1.16 says it is the gospel that's the power of God and the salvation. And the gospel is more than just John 3.16. It's explaining who God is, who man is, what sin is, and what's going to happen to man if he doesn't deal with his sin problem. Okay, Genesis 2, 8 through 9. Let's continue on. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground of the, uh, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we see man's first dwelling place, and it's the garden of delights. It's the garden of Eden. Imagine a world dominated by righteousness and goodness, a world where there, there, there's no injustice, where no court ever rendered an unjust verdict, or, or where everyone is treated fairly. Imagine a world where what is true and right and noble marks every aspect of life, including interpersonal relationships and, and commerce and education and politics and government. Imagine a, a world where there's complete, total, enforced, and permanent peace but where joy abounds and good health prevails, so much so that people live for hundreds of years. Imagine a world where the curse is removed and where the environment is restored to pristine purity of the Garden of Eden, where peace reigns even in the animal kingdom and and so that the the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and the little boy will lead them. Imagine a world ruled by perfect, glorious ruler who instantly and firmly deals with sin. Humanly speaking, that description seems way out there, doesn't it? A utopian fantasy that could never be reality, yet that accurately describes conditions of the world during the future earthly kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the millennial kingdom, which is merely a recreation or a removing of the curse so that we return to pre-sin days. Wow. That's the kind of world I want to live in. In 2.8 it says, And the Lord God planted a garden. The Garden of Eden was a real place. It's not just a moralistic story told to kinda get our emotions going. It's marked by a relationship geographically to the land of Nod, if you look at Genesis four sixteen. Okay. And and whenever it's mentioned in Scripture, it's treated as a literal place. It's never treated as some type of story uh, line in a in a myth. And even though Genesis 2:8 through 9 would seem to give a pinpoint location with geographic markers such as the four great rivers if you continue to read in Genesis 2 that all come from one headwater in Eden, the Tigris, Euphrates, Pishon, and Gihon, only two remain, the Euphrates and the Tigris river. And it is disputable if they are even the same rivers that are mentioned in Genesis 2:8 and 9. Because something happened, right? Something happened. We can't know the location of Eden anymore. There's no way we can find the pre-flood geographical markers. In, in, in 2 Peter 3.6 it informs us that that world that was perished. In the flood, the world before sin Perished. So the face of the earth underwent a massive change, and we had um, our friend Jay Siegert come and give us all sorts of information of what took place with that cataclysmic event called the flood. Even in the areas surrounding the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers, we see that they rest on massive fossil fields, so that flood definitely uh, affected that area. And so why... Are there still two rivers named Tigris and Euphrates then? Well, for the same reason that there's a little town just north of us named Scandia. And another one just north of that, a lot further north, Uppsala. or Uppsala. Right? What, what are those towns? They're not the original towns, are they? Often people name new towns and geographic things after ones that they previously knew. The Swedes and the Norwegians came here from Scandinavian countries, and they said, this is just like home. And so they named towns after their hometowns and their old country. There are many rivers named after great rivers of Europe by the new settlers there. And it, it could have well been that Noah and his sons did a similar thing as they resettled the earth after the flood. Remember, they lived a long time. So what are some of the characteristics of that garden, that beautiful garden? Although it's specific location is unknown, Eden was a paradise of lush bounty and great beauty. And then the very name Eden means a well-watered place or an oasis. And the Bible tells us that it was watered both by those rivers and a mist which covered the earth. We talked about that mist a little bit. That's in Genesis 2, 5, and 6 and the people of the middle east even now it's very arid and dry and they put a lot of value on water and any place that was well watered was like a paradise to them now i'm not saying that this is uh, eden was like a paradise it was paradise the presence of god was there right and he had fellowship with adam and eve after he created them in the garden so God prepared a perfect environment for Adam that met every human need. And, and I want you to understand that it does say that God planted this garden. He prepared a place specifically for the man and the woman. That's very unique. What does that tell us about God? That he's, he's some force out there? there? He has care for his creation. And he went ahead and he prepared. All the days of creation were all preparation for the crown of creation, man and woman, and how he created them. And then he takes that crown of creation and he prepares a garden and and he places Adam in that garden. Now, if you want to know what the garden is like, all you have to do is think of the post-fall earth. Earth after sin entered. Okay? So let's do a comparison. Before... Man was in fellowship with God after broken fellowship. Before, man and women were in fellowship with each other. Adam and Eve had no bones with each other. They loved each other. They're created for each other. And afterwards, their fellowship is broken. In the garden, mutual love and trust existed between man and woman and man and God. Afterwards, suspicion and blame. When God came into the garden and cooled the day, Adam ran and hid. Why? Why? What happened? Prior to that, they had sweet fellowship. See? Sorry. They've done that with gay, too. I used to talk about Christians have the distinct joy of gay abandonment. I don't say that anymore. So there is suspicion and blame. He ran and hid because he is afraid. And then when God talked to him, he blames his wife. And then God talks to Eve, and she blames the snake. And the whole poor snake couldn't blame anybody, because he did it. (laughs) All the needs were met. Every single need that the human couple had was met in the garden. But afterwards, they'd eat by the sweat of their brow. In the garden, trees were pleasing and good. Look at verse 9. It says, out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. Man, this tells us so much about God. He's got aesthetics. Beauty is important to God. Okay, Some people would really condemn evangelicals because we've got no sense of aesthetic. We make our churches out of warehouses, Lutherans do a good job, people. They have aesthetic value. They know the value of beauty. And, 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 you know, if you go into the great cathedral, St. Paul's Cathedral, on the hill there, the very first thing that will strike you is you might be talking as you're walking up the steps. As soon as you go in, you lower your voice and you're quiet. You whisper. Why? Because it's showing by its architecture the incredible greatness of God. And it humbles you and it makes you quiet. It makes you feel small. And then you look at the stained glass windows and you just marvel. There was, there was attitude and, and intentionality in the creation of the, the great cathedrals. Now I'm not saying that we should do that. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just telling you what it does and, and what it has done. And that God does love beauty. But afterwards, the earth was cursed, and those trees produced thorns and thistles, right? Before, there was no death. Afterwards, death reigned. Before, there were no tears or sorrow or goodbyes. Afterwards, all of that was visited on mankind. Now, it's very interesting that we read that God created that that beautiful place. And in verse 15, it says, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. God did not sit down and have a discussion with Adam and give him the reasons why he thought it would be a good idea if Adam took up his abode in this beautiful garden that he created. He took the man and placed him in the garden that he had prepared for him. What does that tell us about God? He is sovereign. He reigns over his creation. And Adam, we don't hear any arguing with Adam or any discussion. He did what his creator wanted him to do. You see, God in his love prepared the garden for man and then in his sovereignty, he placed the man in the garden. God is both the creator and thus acted sovereignly without consulting Adam at all. And then God gave Adam work to do. There was work to do, but it was without toil. Let's continue to read. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat in it, you will surely die. You will surely die. And he gives him a responsibility. There's a choice here. It's the first test of man. And we see that in two, eight and 9 compared with 15 and 17. Genesis 2.8 is a kind of summary statement and then 2.9 through 14 kind of goes on and gives the details of what was said in 2.8. There were multiple trees in the garden and they were all beautiful and pleasant to the sight like we said, right? But God is a God of beauty and he's not just a utilitarian God. I mean, he could have just made food just kind of pop up out of the ground. He's God. But he didn't. There's beauty attached to his creation. And what he created brought pleasure to the senses. He created man with the capacity to enjoy pleasure. But among all those beautiful trees, there were two that were specifically singled out. Even more emphasis is given to them in that they were in the center of the garden. It was in the midst of the garden itself. The tree of life. Now, the fruit from the tree of life, if eaten regularly, would enable people to live forever, even people who were mortal and dying, according to Genesis 3.22. Let's look over to Genesis 3.22. We'll jump ahead a little bit. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, Knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Live forever in his rebellion against his Creator. Live forever. Alienated from God. But God did something. The implication, post-fall, was that if the couple were allowed to stay in the Garden of Eden and were to eat of the fruit from the tree of life, they would live forever in the state of estrangement from God. And so God, in his love and his mercy, determined a different path and sent Adam and Eve out from the Garden of Eden. At the east end, he stationed a cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. He did not want them to take from the tree of life and continue to live forever in that state of estrangement from God. So actually him getting them out of the Garden of Eden was a severe mercy that he gave to them as a couple. We should not fail to remember that in Revelation 22.2 is a scene from the new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem all the way back at the end of the book. And there's a river of the water of life. And it's crystal clear. And it comes out from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life. Tree of life's there again. Bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The Taliabo wrote a great hymn about this. When they heard this, they thought their hearts just welled up and they had to express it in a hymn that they wrote. And they loved singing this about living in the new heavens and the new earth where there's a tree of life that gives forth its fruit every season, 12 fruits, and you eat it and you have and enjoy eternal life. Oh, they'd sing out like that. Let me elaborate just a little bit on the new Jerusalem and what it will be like. It is a new creation in which there will be at least these nine features. And you can see all this in chapter 21 of uh, Revelation. In verse 1, we see that there's no more sea. I'm happy about that. I don't like the ocean. Don't like the ocean at all. Number 2, there's no more tears, death, sorrow, crying, or pain. That's in chapter 21, verse 4. There's no more sinners, chapter 21, verse 8. No more sinners. There's no more fear, 21, verse 12. There's no more sun or moon, 21, verse 23. There's no more night. There's no more sin or evil. There's no more disease or injuries. There's no more curse. All gone. But here's what's In the new creation, unending fellowship with God, 21 verses 3, 7, and 22. Unending newness. Now, this thrills me, this unending newness, right? Um, Don't you feel that way? Okay, ladies, when you're shopping and you see something new, that sense of thrill that you saw something new, or you're online, right? You don't who goes a brick and mortar anymore? You're online, you're looking through, and you're oh that's cool. I never saw that before. That sense, right? Will be unending. What is it gonna be like? If there's unending water of life for us, there's unimaginable beauty, there's uncompromised security, unbroken unity between believers. That alone is worth the price of admission. Unlimited holiness, unparalleled size, untold wealth, unending light, unrestricted access, unending fruit from the tree of life, unceasing service to God, and an unending reign. I can say with absolute confidence that there will not be any who are unclean those who practice abominations and those who lie because no people like that will be in the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And I say to you that they will not be anywhere present in the new heavens and new earth anywhere for their place is a different place. It's the lake of fire, what we refer to as hell. In that lake of fire, there is no presence of God there. But in a new Jerusalem, he's the light. That's why there's no need for moon or stars or, or moon or sun, because he is ever his light, He's present there with us. Now God created the heavens and the earth, and He prepared the garden for the man, and He has promised to prepare a place for us. Then Jesus say, "I go to prepare a place for you. Come on, people. He's just doing what he already did there. He's preparing a place for us. And he says, If it wasn't so, I wouldn't tell you. I wouldn't lie to you. I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. Oh, take that one to the bank. And it's, it's available for all who will humble themselves and repent and turn and trust Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. He also promises that he's going to recreate a new heaven and a new earth. And I just told you what it's going to be like. So in closing, all I have is one question for you for application today. You're going to be there? Will you be there? Because you're the only one that can answer that. Your parents can not answer it for you, kids. Your husband can't answer it for you, wives. Wives, nobody can answer it for you. Each individual must make that decision in their own heart to repent from their sin and rejoin their relationship with their creator through trusting Jesus Christ to forgive all of their sins. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word and just the thrills of Genesis These are our foundations, Lord, as human beings. And Father, it is the earth and the heavens that you created that constantly show and point to you and your august power. And then, Father, as we read in the scriptures, it is revealed to us, self-revealing. You're revealing yourself to us, how intimately you're involved with your creation, how much you love man, that you actually created a place for him. And it wasn't just a place, it was a garden of delights. And yet we know the end of the story that even though all this was done, on behalf of his creation, his creation turned and in rebellion wanted to go their own way, Lord. Oh God, forgive us sinners. And strike us afresh with your love and your concern and help us to want to serve you and live for you every moment of the day until we see you face to face, we pray. Amen.